with regard to the prayer night, there's just, I'm a part of pastors in the Sanford area, but there is something that, that I believe God wants to do that's beyond pastors being unified, and that's the churches being unified. And so we're taking baby steps right now, and our goal is to be able to see as many small churches be a part of this, to be able to come together for prayer, for fellowship. There's some teaching, but just basic. We're, we're wanting to see greater unity in the body of Christ in the churches, because the Bible refers to the city church. Okay, that means a bunch of local churches that identify with this geographic area called Sanford or whatever, and that their goal is to be unified as the city church. God honors this. And so I'm just going to encourage you, be a part of these prayer nights. At the end of April, on a Saturday morning, we're going to be doing a picnic with all the churches. I'm going to encourage you, come be a part of that. But let's pray that God is going to bring, bring greater unity to our churches. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Um, so thank you for your patience. Shay, by the way, we're so glad that you are here joining us. Um, and she is just, she asked me, is, is this um, the, uh, what is it now, the oxygen take? Is that too much noise? And I said, nope. I'll just make sure in my preaching I accent every time. It, anyway, I'm just kidding. But the truth is that it's not a problem. Um, we're, you're all focused on the worship, and now you're going to be focused on the Word. And I believe that the Word of God can so transform our lives, church, because it's powerful. It, it is God's truth. The truth sets us free. When I know this truth and experience it, it sets me free. When I walk in this truth, church, it sets me free. It sets you free. So we're going to dive into the truth. We're going to dive into God's word. Turn to Revelation 21. We've been looking at heaven. And before I do that, before we read the scriptures, before I begin to say any more, I want us to just pray. So Father, we do that right now and we come boldly before your throne of grace. We're in need, Lord God. We're in need of encouragement. We're in need of your instruction, truth. We're in need of greater freedom in our own personal lives over sin. We're in greater need of relationships being restored, and we believe that your word can do all of this as it penetrates our hearts, as it saturates our spirit with truth. Do this, Lord God, and empower us by your spirit to walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a story told, as these stories usually are, of a, a gravestone at an Indiana cemetery, and the epitaph reads as follows. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so will, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. Now, an unknown passerby decided to add something underneath that epitaph with these words. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. How true. You know, I've talked with uh, people and just about their, uh, they, 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 I ask them, so are, are, you a, are you a Christian? And they say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Sure, sure, sure. And as, as you know, they put their drugs away. And, and, so, and I say, so can I ask you then, do you, do you follow Jesus? And they say, well, not really. And I say, well, hang on a second. So you're a Christian that doesn't follow Christ. And can I just tell you that until you follow Jesus, you're not a follower of Christ and you're not a Christian. Because that's what a Christian is. 
And I had an opportunity usually to then share the gospel with them. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is in the Old Testament concealed. It's not real clear. When you hit the New Testament, your eyes are open and it's like this is what the gospel is. The gospel isn't just a set of truths. It is a truth about Jesus Christ. I don't just simply place my faith in a set of dogma. I place my faith in Jesus Christ that this dogma, this truth talks about. And so we're followers of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus tonight, I implore you, make a decision. Think through this. Count the cost. But say, yes, I'm all in. I want to follow Jesus no matter what. And the Bible says that if you do, then heaven awaits you. And we've been looking at heaven, and and I'm not talking about heaven that's right now. Because if you didn't know, the heaven that's right now is different than the heaven after Jesus comes back. The heaven right now we call the intermediate state. That means when I die, my body goes into the ground, and my spirit goes to be with the Lord. Not too much is talked about there. Paul had visited it, and he heard things that a man is not permitted to speak of. So there's very little that's written about that, but there's quite a bit that's written about the heaven after Jesus comes back. And that we discover at the end of Revelation, many other places, but it is basically heaven that now comes to a restored earth. We're going to continue our, uh, our, our series on this, but I want us to just recap very briefly, okay? We have discovered in Revelation 21, the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I mentioned to you, I truly believe that the picture here is either literal or it is symbolic. And I have chosen symbolic for the, for the following three reasons. There are several others. But number one, when the angel speaks to John, he says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. See, that's you and me. That's the church. The bride, the wife of the lamb. If you're a guy, I'm sorry that, that makes you feel uncomfortable, but you're still the bride of Christ. In an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that is on earth comparable to marriage. But that is the relationship that we have with Christ. That is the intimacy we're called to. We're the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he says in the very next verse, and he showed me the city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And I've mentioned to you how odd it would be if I said, here, I'm going to show you pictures of my wife. And 20 of them, in fact. And the first 18 were about my house. And then more pictures about my house, but my wife is in the last two. You would scratch your head and say, Mike, hang on a second. I thought you said you were going to show me your wife, and you just showed me two pictures of her. We do see the nations at the very end, but we see so much more, and I would suggest it's because what we really are seeing is the bride. We are, the, the city is symbolic of the bride, the kingdom of God. Twice in Revelation, Paul, uh, John is told that God will make them to be a kingdom and priests. We are, twice it tells us in Revelation, we are the kingdom of God. That's this picture right here. The second reason is because John is taken to a great and high mountain. For what reason? It's not because that's where the new Jerusalem settles. It settles down apparently in a valley, but he now has an aerial view to be able to describe this amazing city. 
Now, what, what size mountain do you think he's on? Let's take the highest one, Mount Everest, five miles high. So he's standing on a mountain the size of Mount Everest. And does he look down upon the city? See, he can't because the walls apparently are 1,400 miles high, 280 times higher than the mountain he's standing on. <clears throat> the gates are approximately 350 miles apart. His best view is either two walls at the corner or one wall and one gate. That's the best view he can get. And yet he's able to describe three gates. He's able to describe even what's inside the city because he sees streets paved with gold and he sees the nations gathered there. And so I would suggest that he is talking about something that's symbolic. He is seeing the bride of Christ, the church, coming down out of heaven now to inhabit this earth. And then thirdly, you would expect that when you walk through these gates of the city out onto the new earth, you would see rolling green grassy hills. You would see a mountain off in the distance, maybe even the one John's standing on. You would see streams or maybe even the river of life as it exits the city. You would see fruit trees all over. You would see animals. But what do you see according to verse 15? of chapter 22. When you look there, outside the gates are those who died in their sin and are in hell. And when you take this literally, see, that just doesn't make sense. When you understand that he's showing us the kingdom of God, the people of God in the new heaven and new earth, then you realize who is it that's outside the kingdom? It is those who perished in their sin. And this is then a picture of hell just outside the kingdom. And so last week, last two weeks actually, we decided that since we're taking some of these symbols and extrapolating them and trying to understand then what heaven is like, we realized that these nations bring their glory and honor into the kingdom. That glory and honor is the image of God that is fully restored. Hebrews 2 actually tells us this, quoting from Psalm 8, that man is made in, in the image of God, and he is crowned with glory and honor. The same two Greek words that are used here. That image of God then is restored. After all, the Bible says that this new earth is a complete restoration to the original. Acts 3.22, excuse me, Acts 3.21 says that Christ remains in heaven until he restores all things. That would be right here. He remains in heaven until he restores all things. And that Greek word restore means restore to the original. So the new earth that heaven now comes to, the new earth that we will be inhabiting after Christ comes back and he creates this new heavens and new earth, that new earth will be, will be paradise restored. Okay? And we will be in our resurrection bodies, very similar to the ones we are now, but immortal, not mortal. This, this image will be restored. Now, we're not going to be omniscient. Only God is omniscient. And if we don't know everything, that leaves room for what then? I would suggest it leaves room for us to learn. Why wouldn't we learn since we don't know everything? Though maybe some of us still think we know everything. Anyway, we don't. And so why isn't there room to grow in our knowledge? Why isn't there, since we're made in the image of God who is the creator, why won't we be creating why won't we be building? Why won't we be discovering, inventing, exploring? We bring our culture into this. I don't believe that we're just going to leave our culture dead in this age. That culture is a part of who I am. That culture, every culture reflects, though there is sin in every culture, that culture is supposed to reflect an aspect, a, a, a facet of this amazing diamond of 
God himself, the image of God in us. And so that's what cultures do. They reflect that aspect of God's image in, in different ways, in their art, their architecture, in their music, their language, in so many different ways. We've, we've looked at these symbols, these, these symbols and what we're going to do this week is we're going to look one, at one more and we're going to, well, excuse me, last week, let me just clarify, last week specifically, we looked at the rewards that will be given and the fact that we will be ruling over this restored earth and working. Just like Adam did in the garden, we're going to be working. God's going to give us assignments, however he chooses to do that, but our reward will be found in what he gives us and what we do. So what I want us to do is I, I want us to look at the scriptures. And, you know, while we're turning there to, to Revelation 21 and 22, um, I want to ask you, does heaven on earth, does that heaven excite you? There is a story told of a man, a father, actually, actually a grandfather, dying in a hospital, in his hospital bed. And as his children and grandchildren were gathered around him, he said this. He said, I feel giddy like a little boy on Christmas Eve. Now, I want you to relate with that. Death is not something that we need to fear. Death is just simply the passageway to that new life. And eventually, when Christ comes back, we're clothed in the immortal. We're going to inhabit this earth. That heaven is something that we look forward to. I look forward to the present heaven, but I look forward to that new heavens. I, would believe, I believe even more to be able to experience all that God has for us and his original purpose. Have you ever heard the expression, they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good? I've never met someone like that. I never have. What I have met are plenty of people who are so earthly minded that they're of no heavenly good. That their mind is on earthly things and not heavenly things. So what I want us to do tonight, as we've been trying to do, is I want you to be excited about heaven. So I'm going to have us walk through over the next 30 minutes. I want us to walk through what this heaven is going to look like. Now, we've looked at like tasks and these types of things. We looked at the possibilities. I mean, why does God even have the stars in the universe? Are they just to twinkle or are they to explore? And the, the universe is so complex, church. Why wouldn't we then at some point explore all of that, understand it, learn from it? There's so much. We're barely scratching the surface. So we've looked at tasks and things that we do and tapping into the image of God and what that can mean. And now what I want to do is I want us to look at this idea of the nations. Because it says right there in chapter 22, verse 26, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. What is a nation? A nation is an ethnos. It's a people group. It's not necessarily a geopolitical group of people, you know, with boundaries and such. But they are a people group. They express a culture. So they're not necessarily the nations that we might know today, though they can include them, of course, but they're groups of people. That's how they're pictured here, groups of people. They're in community with one another. They're in relationship with one another, communicating in their culture, bringing that splendor, that glory and honor into the kingdom that reflects, that is now being renewed in, in the image of God. And so I'm going to suggest that heaven is going to be filled with old friendships 
as well as new friendships. And that God's desire, now that sin is extracted, to now introduce us to our old friends in which the flesh is not a part of that. Okay? Spouses don't say amen now. Careful there. That we are be, we're going to be building these friendships. We're going to recognize people. We're going to be building these friendships. We're going to be meeting new people and building new friendships because we're going to be a community of people. The kingdom of God is rooted in community. It's rooted in relationships. We're called the family of God. We're not called the individuals of God. No pastors that say we're called the individuals of God. We're the family. We're the unit. We are this social structure within the kingdom of God that's supposed to express the image of God in relationship. But here we do it fallibly. We, we sin, and that's going to be gone. And so what I want to do then is as we look at this, we need to realize that this, there's a number of symbols here. There are 12 gates there are 12 foundation stones. The dimensions of the city are 12,000 stadia, not 1,400 miles. It comes to us as 12,000 stadia, which granted is 1,400 miles, but it's 12 times 1,000. 1,000 being symbolic of uh, very much or very many in Revelation especially. It's 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000 stadia. The wall is 144 cubits. That is 12 times 12. 12 is the number of the people of God. Again, it's this idea of 12 tribes, community, 12 apostles as they follow the Lamb, community, okay? Is th then we look at the precious stones, the gold and the pearls that express high value and the purity of God's collective people in relationship with one another. So we see the symbolism of this community of the people of God everywhere in this. And so I want to talk about that. We've talked about tasks. Now I want to talk about relationships. So let's turn to Luke chapter 16. Excuse me. Yes, Luke 16. When... Our church in January was going through the New Testament. Several of you went through the New Testament. Commendations to you guys. You read through the entire New Testament. Amazing. Amazing. One person brought up a question when they were going through Luke 16. And that just happens to be what we're going to look at. Get there in just a moment. But in verse 1, let's understand Jesus is telling them a parable. And he says, Jesus told his disciples. So who is he talking to, church? His disciples. Okay, just want to make, sure, make, make that clear. There was a rich man, he says, whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. That is, the master's possessions. We don't know exactly how he did this. It's possible that he wanted to make some extra money on the side, and so he took, he, 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 he lent out with high usury and high interest and hoping to glean off the top of that beyond what the master's interest was or what the master was, his intended purpose was. And so when he comes down to, hey, you owe 800 of this, pay back only 400. And he is getting fired because of how he managed his master's finances. So on his way out, he has this idea. I'm going to recoup some of what the master, uh, some of his losses, but I'm also going to make friends with some people because I'm going to bless them. Hey, reduce this, reduce that. You don't owe that much, you owe this much. And now 
I, I don't want to get into it any more than that because I want to focus on this. Are you there with me now? Verse 8. It says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I agree with that. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I want to focus on that. There's, there's much more that Jesus had to say, but I want to focus on that. You'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. First of all, let me just say this, that he is not suggesting that we use money to buy friends. He's not suggesting that. He is suggesting, though, that it's not just, this word isn't just money, it's wealth. It's actually what money, it's it's actually money, but it's also what money buys. It's your accumulated wealth, okay? Use all of your resources, all of what you have to bless others. That's what he's getting at. See, when you take what you have and bless others with it, this, when someone does that for you, does that not endear your heart to them? When people love you in this way, when they share with you, when they take what they have, even though it may be little, and they share it with you. And so Jesus is saying, do that. Be generous. Share with people. And the result is, when you get to heaven, they're going to welcome you into eternal dwellings. So may I suggest that these eternal dwellings are dwellings on the earth. They are dwellings that we have actually built. We're creative, remember? The image of God is in full bloom and unhindered by sin, and we're creative as our heavenly creator is, and we're creating. We're building buildings. We're doing stuff on earth. We're not just sipping pina coladas on the beach as the waves crash on the ocean, okay? It's it's not some eternal vacation. If it was an eternal vacation, see, you're wired for work, church. You may not realize this. You're wired to do things. You're wired to bless and help people. That's what work is supposed to be about. And if you extract that and it's just about vacation, that means it's just about you and... That just doesn't have a place in the kingdom of God. And, you know, I I, I have listened to people as they go to a movie, for example, by themselves. And I just thought, I'm, I'm, I'm not like on the high end of a people person. I'm not. I know my wife is. And my kids would agree with this. How can you go to a movie by yourself? Don't you want to bring somebody? Don't you want to enjoy it with someone? When you, I would hate going on vacation by myself. I would get bored. I would. I, I enjoy going on vacation with my family. I want to enjoy things with my family. That's like everything for me, okay? Except I'd rather read a book by myself, just so you know. But it's... Heaven is community, it's people, it's relationships. These dwellings we're invited into. Can I just suggest to you that French, these friendships, there's not going to be any more sin. There's not going to be any more understandings, no hurts, no rejections, no arguments to accuse or defend ourselves. No belittling, no irksome quirks. 
My family's excited about that. You mean dad isn't going to comment throughout an entire movie? Really? Man, I'm looking forward to that. No irksome quirks. Instead, we're going to have discussions. We're going to be talking. I love this picture of a campfire, but whatever. Personal stories, making connections, serving and loving each other, deferring to each other. No self-serving focus. It's all about the other guy. There's going to be long-lasting wounds that in heaven, even though you're a Christian, some wounds may still remain. I, I pray that they won't. I believe the here on earth, God can heal all of our wounds. But because of the flesh, that doesn't always happen. In heaven, they will be gone. If you're struggling with a wound today, maybe even from your childhood, God has the power to heal that. And if he doesn't do it here on earth, and I pray he does, but if not, in heaven it will be completely gone. And it describes it this way, the, the, the tree of life has leaves that heal the nations nations, groups of people, relationships, healed, sin gone. I'm looking forward to that. Long-lasting wounds will be healed, severed relationships, restored in Christ beautifully, forever caught up in one single goal. And that is what I can sow into this friendship not what I can get out of it. Have you ever been in those friendships in which you can tell that the other person is just in it for what they can get out of it? It exhausts you, doesn't it? That's not what friendships were meant for. Friendships, make it your goal in friendships here on earth to be a giver, not a taker. Now, there are times, and I understand this, in which we are so hurt, we can't even think outside of our own hurt. I, I get that. I believe God can set us free from that and heal us. But our goal, church, is not to go into friendships. What can I get out of this friendship? It is about what can I give. And I'm going to tell you this, that if you are giving 100% in a friendship, and that's their goal too, that's their goal too you're going to love that friendship. That, that's what friendships were created for. In heaven, that's exactly what they are. This is the practice then of hospitality. You see, we're going to be having our own dwellings. As, as we have our own dwellings and things that we have created, whatever, whatever goes into that, we're going to be inviting people in. Everything that you have been given, everything that you create, everything that you now you do around your house, the food, that is now something that you will want to share. I was telling my grandkids just the other day. I was, I was babysitting them, and I, and I noticed that they kept saying to one another, that's mine, that's mine. And my daughter teaches them, look, that's theirs, and they will share it if they want to, okay? But you can't take it from them. Are you aware that private property is actually a biblical principle? Did you know that? And that when you look at socialism, it's completely bankrupt because God is, because the Bible says God is the one who gives us our rights, our human rights and so on. The government, in socialism, it's the government. The government usurps God in socialism. It's the one that owns property and not you. But we don't see that. God gave things to Adam and Eve. They owned it so that if you took it, we call that what? Stealing. It's impossible to steal if you don't own anything. What are people going to steal? It's not yours. 
It belongs to the community, right? So socialism for many reasons, other than those are bankrupt. But the truth is God has us own things. And I told the kids, I didn't go into all that. I just said, you know what? Yeah, that would have been really weird if I did all of that, gave them a real theological lesson about private property. No, the truth is I, I said, guys, did you realize that God has us own things for two reasons? And they looked up at me and said, yeah. Number one, it's to meet your needs. And these toys, man, I hope you have fun playing with them. And I think there's a need for us to just enjoy creativity playing with toys. But there's a second reason, equally important, and that you are given things, you own things to share, to share. So you have these toys, and I hope you have fun playing with them, but your goal is to share your toys. I had a daughter, and um, this daughter loved on a, on a particular sibling's birthday, loved to walk around the house, pick something up, sometimes it did not belong to her, wrap it up, and then give it as a gift to them. We never said, well, that doesn't belong to you. We never said that. We just laughed and we just thought it was the greatest thing. But you can't give away something that's not yours. You just can't. And you, we will own things in heaven and we will be able to share them. That will be our goal. That will be the passion. Every time we wake up in the morning, what can I share with other people? I mean, when you wake up in the morning, is that what drives you? Or is it that 8 o'clock where you've got to be at work? that drives you? Or, or is, is it pleasing your boss? I, mean, I hope he doesn't yell at me today or she. Or, you know, whatever. No, our goal will be, I want to be, I want to create things and I want to be able to bless others with it. That will be our consuming passion, blessing others. We see here that when you have done this, people will welcome you into eternal dwelling. That kind of brings up a question then, and that is that if you have friends, will you be able to recognize them? I mean, we're going to be having a glorified body, right? So is that glorified body, is everyone, are all the guys going to look like, give me a name. Okay, Ken and all the ladies like Barbie? Man, I hope not. All right. Are you going to look just like you? And it will be beautiful, you handsome, attractive. God's, God's going to allow you to retain. There's going to be that sense of continuity from this earth to the next. In the next chapter, excuse me, later in this chapter, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is suffering in Hades. Hades is where the wicked spirits go. They don't go to hell. Hell is not something people are cast into until the end of the age. So here he is. He's in Hades, and he recognizes this beggar that used to be outside his house begging all the time. He recognized him. He asked him if Lazarus would be able to just dip his finger in water and touch it on his tongue, kind of assuming that Lazarus the beggar would be his servant, right? Yeah, that kind of thing. I see continuity there. But he was able to recognize Lazarus. When Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, the only reason why the two, Cleopas is one, we don't know the name of the other, the reason why they weren't able to recognize them was only because they were kept from it. 
That evening when they arrived seven miles from Jerusalem where they started, they're sitting down at a meal. Jesus blesses and breaks the bread and then he disappears. That must have been pretty awesome. But he disappears and they, sit, and they finally recognize him and it's like, what? That was Jesus that was walking with us. Why didn't we recognize? Well, it's not because he didn't look like him necessarily, but it's because they were kept, they were kept from recognizing him. I believe that people are going to be able to recognize us. We're going to be able to recognize. I'm going to be able to recognize my son-in-law here. I'm going to be able to embrace him. I'll probably precede him, but when he gets there, I'm going to give him great big hugs. I'm going to show him my dwelling place. But where there's going to be relationships, we're going to be able to recognize friends. Question is many times asked, well, how old do you think you'll look? And I'm going to suggest, since I'm going to look like Ken apparently, that, no, I'm going to suggest that we're not going to be too old, too young or too old. Maybe, I mean, how old, by the way, are the angels? I don't know. I've actually seen some people, and I figured they were like, around 40 years of age, found out they were 70 years old. I just thought, what? Some ethnic groups retain their age so well. It's amazing. But there is a passage in Scripture that talks about an angel, and he is described as a young man. So I'll take that. I'll look like a young man. I'll go with that one. But the Bible is not clear, just so you know. There we go. Thank you. Just keep telling me that. In Genesis 2, 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, his remedy to that was a wife. But the, the truth is that Adam was wired for relationships, for companionship. And, and Jesus does say that in heaven there's not going to be any marriage. I'm disappointed about that, but okay. I'm sure that this desire for intimacy will be found in greater fulfillment with people and most importantly with Jesus himself. But there, there will be no lack. I am wired. You are wired for relationships. I believe that we will experience a depth in our relationships that we've never experienced before. These eternal dwellings will be our personal homes. In John 14, 2, it says, In my Father's house are many rooms. Literally, it's many dwellings. And the only reason why the NIV translates it rooms is because the metaphor of house is used. I mean, you don't have buildings in a house or dwellings in a house. So you have rooms, and I, I get that. But what is God's house? In Scripture, throughout Scripture, that's used as a metaphor for his kingdom. So in his kingdom, on this new earth, there are going to be many dwellings. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. It doesn't mean that Jesus is going to go to heaven and he's going to build all of these buildings. He's going to prepare a place for us by the cross and the resurrection. In that way, he is preparing the way for this place. Heaven only exists because of what Christ has done for us. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he made a way. And so 
we get to inhabit this because of what Christ has done. Isaiah 65, 17. You can turn there with me. Isaiah 65, 17. It says this is the only place in the Old Testament that talks about a new heavens and the new earth. This is what Peter, when he talks about the new heavens and the new earth, this is about what John, when he talks about the new heavens and the new earth, this is where it comes from. This is the only passage in the entire Bible that talks about it. And so I'm going to suggest this passage is about heaven itself. So listen, behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Are you there with me? Isaiah 65, 17. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. What is it? It's Jerusalem. It's that new city, that the kingdom of God. Then it goes on in verse 20. Never again will there be in it. What is it? It's that new city that God has created. It is his kingdom now on earth. The rest of this from verses 20 to 25 have to do with heaven. I realize that there are some, because of the way this passage is worded, they say, no, it can't be heaven because it talks about death. It can't be heaven. It is about this millennial reign of Christ on the earth. Can I just suggest that the scripture is clear here? No, this is truly about heaven. When he talks about death, he is basically saying that even though there was death on earth, that's not going to happen in heaven. Now, I, I, there, there's much more that ne may need to be said about that, but my focus, look at there in verse 21. It's this, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Our goal, it goes on, no longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. God is allowing us to have this so that we can share it with others. We'll be welcoming old and new friends into our dwelling places. Isaiah 25, 6 through 8 is another passage that talks about heaven. Again, that's Isaiah 65, verses 6 through 8. Because of time, I'm not going to read it to you. But it talks about feasting. God preparing a feast for us. Church, there's going to be eating. We're going to enjoy heaven. Now, the disgrace of sin is going to be gone, but my question is, how do we take that? How far do we take that? It's because many people equate fun with sin, and so if there's no sin, how can we have fun? How would we be able to have entertainment if there's no sin? How can we, they even equate boredom with holiness? I'm sorry, but there is no scripture that backs this. Church, if you want laughter, if you want fun and games and sport and entertainment, the best place is going to be in the renewed earth. We are wired for this. Sometimes people think, well, entertainment, that just doesn't... Well, then why do you be... Are, you, are, are any of you entertained? And if you are, is that sin? Maybe you're being entertained right now. I hope you're enjoying this, but is that sin? Is it sin to listen to a sermon you enjoy? I hope it's not. Man, I got to report to God on this one. You better help me out here. I hope you... Fun is not sin. Now, there is fun that can be sin, yes, but pull the sin out of it. Church, the most fun place to ever be, ever, ever, 
will be in heaven. You're, you're going to be able to tell jokes and they're actually going to work and people will laugh. I look forward to that. We're, we're going to be filled with laughter. We're going to be filled with joy. Why wouldn't we? We were created for this. Satan didn't invent fun. God did. Here we go. Amen. So here's my, another question. Can we grow in heaven? I'm not necessarily talking about physically growing, but can we grow in abilities, in skills? Because some people think that when there's no sin, we're going to be perfect. Well, see, I get that. We're going to be perfect as in the streets of gold are pure. We're going to be pure. There's not going to be any imperfections of sin or lack of character in us. Okay. But if you extract sin from your life, that doesn't make you suddenly perfect at, say, golf. All right? One person was quoted saying that, you know what? I don't think we're going to play golf in heaven Let me get this right here. There's not going to be any golf in heaven because always hitting a hole in one would quickly get boring. I would suggest, I'm not sure you understand heaven. I believe we're going to be able to grow in our skills. We're going to be able to grow in relationships. We're going to be able to grow in our knowledge and skills. Why wouldn't we? If we're not omniscient, that means then we can grow, right? Can we grow in character? I want you to think about that. Because I often, I think often we have this view of heaven as being everything is like perfect, 100%. There's no growth. It's like you've achieved everything. Well, what are you going to do for eternity then? I'm, I'm sorry, but since you're not God, I think there's room for growth. Now think about this, growth in character. Oftentimes we think that love is merely the extraction of selfishness. But follow me on this. I'm going to give you an example. You were presented with a problem. There are 10 solutions, 10 different solutions to this one problem. The first five, there's some aspect of sin that is a part of them, some aspect of selfishness. Number one being very sinful. The other, not so much so, number five. But what about six to 10? I'm I'm going to suggest that that options six to 10 have no sin in them. Number six is loving, but number 10 is very loving. Do you follow me? Have you ever watched someone in a particular situation and how they expressed love? And you just thought, wow, that was so good. Then you saw someone else in a very similar situation, and that was just such an amazing way to demonstrate love. And if you were to grade it, you would say, well, that would be a six and that would be a ten. I'm only suggesting this because why wouldn't we be able to grow in our ability to express love? So that's what it means to grow in relationships. It's not stagnant. I don't don't see anywhere in, in my Bible that would disagree with that. Now, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I just don't see anything that Scripture says, no, you're not going to grow. You're going to be perfect in every way. Jesus had to deal with imperfections here on earth. And there were some people that claimed to be very religious, loving, and they were anything but at times. 
As a matter of fact, when it came to love, it wasn't the people or God they loved, it was themselves. As we go back to Luke 16, I want to wrap this up, and I want us to see how Jesus closes out addressing the Pharisees. In verse 14 of chapter 16, he says this, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this. Church, who was Jesus originally talking to? His disciples. But the Pharisees overheard it. And they were sneering at Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Now what he means here is that this love of money and all that money can buy, when the Pharisees loved that money, when they loved the things that they bought, those things began to displace the proper place that God needed to have in their lives. He called this idolatry. And they were caught up in this idolatry. They loved money. They loved everything that money could buy. It was theirs. Mine, mine, mine. Just like in Finding Nemo. Remember those seagulls? Mine, mine, mine. You know, that was, that's what they, that was their chant every day. Mine, mine, mine. They're, Christians can be just like this. They can be little seagulls. Now that's mine. But when it's yours, what are the two goals? Okay, it meets your need. And what else? It's an opportunity to share, to give away. And these Pharisees, they were blinded. Money and all that money could buy. It stole their affections. They wanted to use them to impress others. They even used all that they had and their finances, their money, to prop up this sense of personal, this sense of personal value. I'm valuable. I mean, look how big my house is. Have you ever worn a suit and found you feeling so good about yourself? You buy a new car and, it, man, it's just like, that's me, yes. No, it's not. No, it's not. That house you live in, that's not you. Your car, I don't care how nice it is, it's not you. It doesn't make you more valuable. And yet, if we're not careful, these possessions can steal our heart that belongs to God. And Jesus challenged them. That type of love, that type of placing value on things, highly valued, God despises that. That's not what ownership is about. Ownership is so that when I have something, I get to share it with my friends. I get to share it with people. So I'm just going to close by saying this, church, I, just wanna, I want you to look over your life. What are you living for? What is your goal in life? Your goal in life is not about acquiring and accumulating as much stuff as you can. Your goal in life is to meet needs so that you can give away. It may not be money. It may be something so very simple. It may even just be your time. 
but our lives are to be wrapped up in how we can give and how we can share. God entrusts this to you, hopefully as good stewards. Everything that he's given to you, your time, your family, your possessions, everything that he has given, it's so that you can share it with others. So how are we doing there? I'm going to promise you that if you end up being a giver in this life, you will receive so many times, a hundred times over in the next life. No matter how much you have to sacrifice now, it will never compare to what you receive then. As long as we just stop keeping our focus here and realize our focus is in heaven. You know what? Those whose, mind, those whose minds are on heavenly things, they will be so much good here on earth because they are the ones who will be the givers. Can you stand with me? Father, we want to live our life intentionally. We want to live in a way in relationship with others that counts for eternity. So I'm just asking you right now, Lord, show us how we can do that. Show us how we can be givers. Show us how we can share. I just want to thank you so much for the people here at Powerline Church. I thank you for the community that you have built here. I thank you for, because God, I, I live with these people and they are givers. They sacrifice so much. Would you bless them for that, Lord God? And if not in this life so much, in the next life abundantly. Father, but help us this coming week as we focus on what our true goal is. And that is to be a giver, to share, to be able to give to our friends. Father, let that be our passion. That's what Christ came to do. He came to give. May we give just like him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.